Writer's Block, The Kids Are All Right, proudly presented by Stay Puffed Marshmallows, the marshmallow that stays puffed even when toasted. I am Rylan Grant, screenwriter, Ringo Award-winning creator of fine comics like Aberrant, Banjax, and The Jump, the other voice in the dark, the man in the box to the left is... Uh, David Avalone, uh, filmmaker, uh, comic book writer, and uh, coffee achiever. Love it. Uh, if you missed any of our previous conversations, episodes uh, featuring comic luminaries like David F. Walker, Matt Fraction, Stan Sakai, Kevin Eastman, Cecil Castellucci, Alex DeCampi, and many, many more, our entire catalog can be celebrated via YouTube, iTunes, Spotify, and other purveyors of worthwhile ear crack. So double on back and check it all out. Um, we have a great show for you today. Before we do that, quick plug, um, my kick you in the teeth and not anywhere else, astral projection thriller, The Jump is now active and getting crazy on Kickstarter. Um, it is uh, a paranoid thriller set in the world of astral projection. It is Inception meets the board identity. If it were dripping with macabre and directed by David Fincher, that is my cool, neato uh, uh, sales pitch. But it's a great comic. We're kicking ass on Kickstarter. Uh, plenty of great uh, uh, rewards and bonuses and all sorts of stretch goal stuff for you there. So go check it out. Uh, bit.ly backslash the jump two, or go to Kickstarter and uh, search for the jump, search for Ryland Grant, and you'll find it and you'll back it and you'll love it. And we'll all live happily ever after. Uh, but great show. Um, let's get going. Uh, please welcome Emma Steinkellner. Hi. Norm Harper. Howdy, howdy. Norm Norm for, as we all know. Uh, Emma, tell us a little bit about yourself. Yeah, um, I'm a writer, illustrator, and cartoonist. Um, I am the illustrator of Kinse, the um, young adult uh, comic about a girl who gets superpowers for a year on her quinceanera, published by Fanbase Press. Uh, locally in LA and online all over. Um, uh, Eyes are nominated. We like that. And um, I'm also the author and illustrator of the middle grade graphic novels, The OK Witch uh, from Aladdin, Simon & Schuster, and the upcoming sequel coming out July 6th, uh, The OK Witch and the Hungry Shadow. Nice. Also from Aladdin and Simon & Schuster. Nice. Love it, love it. In which she goes to lunch with Lamont Cranston. It'll be great. Yeah. Uh, Spoilers. <laughs> <laughs> uh, Norm, tell us a little bit about yourself. Uh, yeah, I'm a writer of uh, comics. I, uh, I yeah. writer of comics. Uh, my first book was Ricky, uh, which I published through uh, my Karate Pet Shop banner. Uh, it's a middle grade graphic novel adaptation of Ricky Tiki Tabby by Rudyard Kipling from the Jungle Book. Nice. Uh, Eyes nominated, and uh, I also did uh, Half Haven from uh, Oni slash Lionforge. Uh, Oni slash Lionforge. Yeah, I think that's how they credit themselves now. Uh, that's a uh, YA adventure about a 13-year-old girl who steps on a crack and does, in fact, break her mother's back and has to travel to Hap Haven, the magical world from which all of Earth's superstitions draw their power in order to retrieve a rabbit's foot to save her mother. And uh, the sequels, uh, also from Fanbase Press, a book about four people who, when they were children, had magical adventures, and now they're disaffected adults, and... Uh, a, uh, they find a magical way to try to relive their childhood, and it all goes horribly awry. Very nice. Yeah, those are great. All of those are great premises. I just want to say. Yeah, yeah I, I couldn't find my copy of uh, of Kinsey. I think. Uh, yeah, I, I think actually my thinking wife about has that hold this of morning when I woke up. It's yeah. like I know I've, I've got, got like four copies of Kinsey. Kinsey and me. Yeah, yeah. Not yeah. to be confused with 
quince about the girl who turns into a fruit on her 15th birthday. It's very different, very different yeah. comic. And, and I don't certainly not to be confused with quince, the Disney Channel original movie where a girl's parents have baby quintuplets. Is that a thing? Is that a real thing? Yes, it is. It's <laughs> a movie. I, I rewatched yeah. it a couple of months ago, and there's a part where um, the dad, you know, after all the babies are born, because they didn't know there were going to be so many, and um, and after, he's like exhausted. He sits down in the hospital waiting room and he goes, It's Quince. And I sent it to my sister because that is how we will get introduced at cons sometimes. Nice. <laughs> that is really funny. I, I, I'm going to get the disclaimer out of the way now. I'm, I'm going to look like a maniac, like petting something off screen the whole time. My uh, my dog, Bernice, has uh, joined us this time. She doesn't usually. Hey, you want to say hello? No? Hi, darling. Okay. <laughs> anyway. Bernice so, is bringing a lot of energy right now. No, she's not. She's crashed out. But um, but I don't want to look like a maniac petting something off screen the entire time. So uh, this is great radio, I know, uh, for those who can't see the video. But um, anyway. Well, uh, you know, last week we had uh, Barbara and Brian on to talk about uh, with David Acampo to talk about the state of the union. And we kind of wanted to continue that conversation, which I think starts with particularly, how did your 2020 go? Comma norm. How did, how did, uh, how did, how did you make, how did you make it through? What did you do? What were you able to get done? Not a lot. Um, I built a lot of Lego and I ran a lot and that's about all I did. Uh, is the is, is 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 the Lego town? Is it is it in the room with you, or is it somewhere else in the house? It's in the hallway. If you want to see it, I can take you to okay, it. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I mean, because Norm has like this this incredible entire Lego. I don't know. Is it a street? Is it a town? I, it's a uh, okay. We're we're, it's, we're going uh, on it's a trip like here. A, a couple of blocks. Is it some okay. kind of like Marwin call thing? I mean, it's it's, it's uh, I don't know. It's, it's kind of amazing. amazing. I don't know if you can see it. Yeah, well, no, I mean, but we can see it. But yeah, there, there's, you know, there, there are raised streets. I just saw an A-Team van. There's a, uh, uh, a Ghostbusters. Yeah, van. Um, Batmobile, Castle Grayskull. Yeah. Wow. Yeah. Anyway, it's it's very that, impressive. That was, a, that was a lot of my 2020 right there. Yeah, I, I, I'm very jealous of it. And it's like, I mean, my, my office is insane and full of amazing stuff. Again, this is great radio. I'm sorry if you guys are listening instead of uh, watching. But um, I don't often get jealous of other people's spaces, but I am uh, I am very jealous of uh, of Norm's Lego. Of having a Lego um, room. Yeah, and I, I did, uh, I took up uh, selling custom Lego instructions in 2020. I taught myself how to do that. And I made more selling Lego than I did selling comics. Selling, <laughs> wow. selling Lego? I did, like is uh, is there an Amway for Lego? This is something I absolutely yeah yeah uh, like no I, so um, I, I generate uh, instructions of the custom builds that I've made uh, like and I sell PDFs of them online. That's um, an amazing scam. What are you selling but, online? What, what sets are you selling online? Uh, I, I'm doing. Um, uh, uh, most, everything that I do custom is, is like based in the eighties. So, uh, my 18 van is up there. Wow. Uh, I'm doing a lot of the transformers. Uh, y'all remember the, the show mask about like regular vehicles. They didn't turn into like attack things. I've got, uh, yeah. that's power that can save the day. Yeah. uh, Maybe. Thunderhawk mask. mask, mobile armored strike command with ah. a K command with a K. It's about cars that turn into Eric Stoltz. Yes. Interesting, interesting premise. Uh, well, it, oh, there it is. Yeah. 
yeah, it's a truck. That he's, when I was listening at home, it's a well, yeah, but yeah, but it turns and then this is like it has a little like missile base inside of it. It has all these cool, sure. yeah, yes, yeah, and I did all that, but very small. <laughs> wow. So I think you know this. This goes to one of my uh, usual uh, soapbox things, which is diversify, kids. Always, always have. There's since I've lived. I've lived in LA since '87, which is what is that? Thirty-four years, and uh, since then I've always I I I I champion something called the job mosaic. Uh, have a have a bunch of things you can do to make a living because if you're counting on that one main thing that was your childhood dream, that may not come with the biggest check right away. So this is why I was a grip on the Power Rangers for the first season. You know, you 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 take what comes. You you do what you can do. You you know you whatever it takes to pay the rent. And sometimes in a pandemic, it's Lego, apparently. And my hat is off to you for the. Uh, the wherewithal to realize that was a, you know, a, that was a thing that you could do and make money for. That's, that's, yeah. Pretty- well, I, I've been getting like, cause I've been building for like 10 years now and, and I just post like on like a Flickr account, like, Hey, look, I, and people ask me all the time, like, can I have instructions? And I'm like, I don't want to figure out how to do that. No, you can't. Right. So now that we had the free time, I was like, let me do that. And then I sold quite a bit. So, yeah. My wife, who's a I union mean, seamstress, uh, when this all started, she made about 700 masks for hospitals, which she sent out. But once that, once the PPE emergency was over, she started making fun and interesting masks and selling them off of Instagram and Etsy and all that. And, uh, you know, again, now union TV work is back up and running. So it's, you know, it's not quite as, uh, not quite as vital an industry as it was, but uh, but again, I always look for another thing you can do. I am a I am a big believer in that. Did you did you do any comics work in the year? Did you get anything written? Did you? Um, I um I, I finished up a manuscript for a new graphic novel, and I connected with the artist for that. And he's uh, we've got the the character concept art and a pitch package put together. He's doing the first set of sequentials right now. We'll start taking that around. And then uh, I, I took, uh, uh, I developed another idea and took that to Louis that I did Hap Haven with and uh, got him signed on to start doing concept art when he finishes the thing he's working on now. So right. I so, did get a little bit of work done, but right. mostly it was, um, it was a lot of despair and uh, wondering <laughs> like what the future was going to hold Sure, uh, for a couple months there. And, well, no, and I think, you know, we can, I think it's a good thing to admit that. Uh, yeah. I think it's, you know, there's always the, uh, there's always the unspoken social pressure to everything's fine. Uh, every situation, including the world ending. <laughs> yeah. Know? Like, yeah. Eh, no, and, fine. Uh, fine. I, I listened to the, the last episode, David Acampo's story was basically exactly like what I, I was doing. Um, uh, about a year ago, uh, I I was having some real friction with my book agent, and I I finally like pulled the plug on him and was like, I'm going to go into the cons hard, and I'm going to I'm going to network, and I'm going to uh, yeah. do all these things to make up for the fact that I'm severing this tie. And then we just didn't get to do any of that. And uh, 
very similar story to, to what he was describing in terms of just like, no, what happens? And yeah. Yep. I, I had a big con year planned myself and I literally like early April of last year went on booking.com and went, nope, nope, won't be using that hotel, won't be using that hotel. Luckily, it was all far enough in the future that it was free, but like cancel San Diego, cancel New York, cancel, 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 cancel. Um, so good, clean, wholesome American fun. Emma, how about you? How was your 2020? Well, um, first, I do want to like put a small asterisk from before and say, um, like I just mentioned the team who worked on Quince because they're great, and I forgot to, and that's on me. Um, but uh, there, it was written by my incomparable sister Kit Stein Kellner, um, and created by Sebastian Kedlechik, really in, incredible um, mind illustrator and writer behind Penguins versus Possums for Fanbase Press also. Um, and they they both rule a ton, as do Barbara and Bryant at Fanbase Press. Just big shout out, big ups to them. 2020, uh, that year, remember that? Um, I um, So it's it actually lined up okay for me because 2020 was a year where I really should have been hold up working inside all the time anyway. It's when I was getting the major work on pencils, inking and color done on um, OK Witch and the Hungry Shadow. So mm -hmm. that was basically my, you know, February was when that really started for me. And uh, <laughs> uh, there was a big motivator to stay inside and work <laughs> starting right around then. Um, and so that's where I was doing like up through fall of this year. Um, otherwise, I've been working on some pitches and animated pilots, um, which has been really exciting um, getting into that. And um, I've also been doing like a lot of like home economics, <laughs> just a lot of cooking, a lot of embroidery, um, a lot of just like figuring out my cleaning game. <laughs> um, so it, it's been, and I've really enjoyed that. Um, um, so that's been my, my 2020, honestly, like I've been, I, I think the, on the kind of like cooking, you know, walking a ton there, there's some just like self-improvement rhetoric that I would have been very allergic to before this year, but there's just some stuff that I kind of need on the daily now, like, you know, moving to, or cooking to make my day more dynamic so that I can like sleep so that I'm just not dragging through the day and then sleep is difficult um but um it's been it's been okay and you know i i really am very thankful that i'm in a line of work where it's very very easy to work from home and <laughs> often mandatory um so i i count my blessings there um and yeah uh I'll, I'll always end of the world but i think i i, I also want to um ha have been trying and also want to be kind of more involved i'm i'm not really an amazing organizer with just making you know life more bearable for people <laughs> as <laughs> as we are yeah the uh the, the work from home thing is is interesting because i mean i'm you know i've I, i've written professionally for about 16 years now and so i have worked from home for 16 years i know how to work from home it's just what i've done so the pandemic hits my life is not that much different, right? You know, I'm still just kind of stuck yeah. at home writing. That's normally where I, where I am. And so as far as I can measure it, my life is about 10% different than it was before this shit started. 
However, that 10% is, is almost always the difference between sanity and insanity, right? It's, it's, that makes the other 90% possible. Yeah. yeah. It's, it's the mean, difference it's, between chimp DNA and human DNA. Like, like we got to the moon <laughs> on this, like, yeah, pretty much. Yeah. I mean, it, it's just, it, just being able to kind of whatever, you know, hop in the car and go, I don't know, walk around anywhere. I mean, being able to fucking just, uh, we have a target pretty close to us. It's like, if I need to clear my head, I'll just, you know, uh, you know, put, put these in, pop on a podcast and go walk around in target for, you know, 20 minutes, a half hour. And it, it just, everything kind of floats away, you know, um, not being able to do that, not being able to like pop into the comic shop whenever I feel like it, you know, not being able to hop into a record store and, you know, flip through old fucking VHS tapes or something yeah. like that. It's, uh, and for are... me, like part of the, part of what I really loved once, um, once okay, which launched was going and doing school visits, visits at libraries, like going and talking to kids and teachers. And I've been doing that online and that's great, but I, I really like, it's, it's a part of my job that I really do miss. Yeah. yeah. Well, and also, yeah. I mean, for me, I had a very big 2019 in terms of having a lot of books, a lot of floppies out in comic book stores. And I had literally nothing out in 2020. I wrote, <laughs> I wrote the equivalent of 10, 12 issues of a comic book. I was paid for them. They just haven't dropped yet. And going a whole year without anything dropping is, I mean, I know that's, you know, that's that's a white wine if ever there was one. I didn't have any books in bookstores this year. It's almost like being dead. It's like no, no, it's not. It's the it's the it's the the the. It is a. It never gets old seeing the new comics, and it never gets old seeing your work out in the world and people enjoying it. But by the same time, and I was lucky. Like the fact that four of the comics I had to write this year were paid for by a Kickstarter long before the world ended so I could sit and write and get paid for that. And I was halfway through a series for Dynamite when things started. And I think that was a record. There was an eight month gap between writing issue two and writing issue three. Like, I don't think I've had that. And I had to literally go back and read the first two and go, what was I, where was I going with this? Cause I'm bad at, I keep a lot of stuff in my head. Like I'll write outlines that have eight words in them. It's like issue four, you know, a two word description of what's going to happen in issue four. It's like, that's not enough for me to remember what I thought. Egypt. Yeah, great. So she goes to Egypt. Egypt's a big country. Where were you going with where were you going with Egypt as an answer to a fourth issue plot problem? But yeah, uh, in terms of like catching catching where you are catching where you are in your like continuity. I had a funny moment this year where I was, you know, I'm working on this sequel to OK Witch, which takes place about three months after the events of the first book, which are in fall of 2019. You know, the dates are in the book. Um, and I was like, oh, shoot, is it going to be weird that I have this book where, you know, kids are in school, like at this time? And then I was like, wait, nope. If, it, if the book takes place from January to February 14th, 2020, I have just barely <laughs> made, <laughs> made it canonically right before coronavirus becomes right. a uh, major public thing. Yeah, I, it, it's such a funny thing. I mean, I'm, um, uh, I, I mean, you, you talk about the gap, Avalone, and I had the same gap, but I'm feeling it. Um, you know, I, I didn't have anything out last year either, and I'm feeling it doubly because, you know, the, the two years before that, 
you know, I had a, a creator owned series each of those years. Um, and then uh, the, the Ringo Award nominations just opened up uh, yesterday. And it, it was always a big part of the year for uh, for me. You know, you start kind of campaigning for those the whole nine yards. And two years ago, I had, you know, I had Aberrant. And then, you know, that ended up nominated for a, co a couple of Ringos and won one. And then next year I had Banjax and that ends up nominated for four. And now I, I don't have anything to right. to get me. <laughs> you know what I'm saying? There's, there's not, I didn't have anything out. And, and it was... Um, and, uh, and, you know, that was, I, I had two books, uh, we covered this, you know, in the last uh, uh, pod, so I don't want to go too much into it. But for the sake of the conversation, I had two books that were set to go with, with major publishers last year, they were, uh, you know, on the verge of being announced, and they were scheduled and about to be solicited the whole nine yards. And then it was pencils down everywhere. And then everyone started getting fired. Um, and, you know, with, with, with this one book, um, it was kind of the, the flagship book that I was, I was uh, uh, pushing. Um, I was in regular contact every day with three people at this large publishing company. And then the next day they were all fired and I didn't have a working email address at the company. Um, you know, and it took me three, four months to kind of, you know, work things out with the new people to the point where it's like, okay, well, it's not going to work here anymore. Um, and then it took me a full year to get this back on track. And so now I'm on the, uh, now I'm on the verge of, um, it, you know, it's uh, the, the info went into diamond uh, a couple of days ago. It's going to be, um, it's going to be in previews in June. It's going to be in a comic shop finally in August. Um, you know, but that's a, that's just a full year layoff for me. It's uh, or, or I guess it's, is it? Yeah. I, 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 I'm all messed up, but I missed an entire year. Um, but then the funny thing is, I mean, Emma, you talk about kind of like having to sort of adjust your story or, or you're thankful that you don't have to adjust your story because like the shit hit the fan. Um, and you know, this book has been in production for, for so long and it, and it, you know, I mean, it's, it, it's a tokusatsu book with like a time travel element. And so it's like a big fantastic sci-fi thing. And so it doesn't wrestle too seriously with all this shit. Um, but, um, but w one of the key points was that we are, th that we, meaning all of us, we're, we're living in an alternate timeline. Everything is so fucked up now, uh, because, uh, you know, because some big sci-fi thing happened. Right. Um, and, and, and there was, there was a single page where a character is like, Hey, just look around, you know? And it talks about like Trump beating Hillary and, uh, and like the Oscar flub and the, the Patriots coming back, you know, against Atlanta and the Super Bowl. these like outrageous things. And, 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 and this being the proof being like, Hey, do you think any of this could have happened if we weren't being fucked with? Right. Um, but now we are like, two years plus removed from all of that, you know? And so I am, I am having to revise that page and, you know, what I'm having to do is kind of look at all of this other shit. Like now I have a pandemic to account for. Now I have, mm -hmm. um, you, you know, Q to account for. Now I have, um, and again, I'm doing it in just like the, the, the smallest way. It's literally a page where this stuff gets kind of mentioned and not like fully legislated. But um, I mean, this, this becomes an interesting topic is like, you know, how do you, <laughs> You know, uh, I mean, the world has changed so much, um, and and I'm dealing with it in Hollywood, where like people don't want people don't want pandemic stories, people don't want movies with people wearing masks, um, all of that shit. But I'm wondering, you know, I'm wondering how you kind of write without without this affecting you, without this like, be, you know, becoming front, becoming center. I mean, I know we are in like the the entertainment business and the distraction business, but it's like you said, you hit it right on the head, where there is this relief 
with the story that you're telling now where you don't have to account for all of this, but now we all have to fucking account for, uh, for, for this from now on. And that is, that's an interesting thing to wrestle with. Right. I watched uh, the new law and order the other day. Uh, and it's a weird, like all the extras are wearing masks, mm-hmm. but the principals are constantly shouting at each other from two feet away from one another with masks in their hands or, and I'm like, so when the detective goes to meet with the mafiosi, did they have a conversation about the mafiosi having had his second jab yet? He's over 65. It's just <laughs> scary. But like, I just, all I keep thinking in, in, in every single scene, I'm like, so you're interrogating this guy. Uh, is he going to cough on you now? Cause you're not wearing a mask. Like, like, you like they're dealing with it but it's still awkward and it's it's tough because it's like simultaneously the one of the more interesting things that's happened in the past you know decade and also just not very interesting because we're you know we're seeped in it all the time we're 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 it's all we really talk about with each other it's you know it's in the water or it's Mm. it's not in the water it's in the water (laughs) technically it's in the air anyway um but it's tricky because i i get like i both kind of got the impulse when it seemed like everyone was like oh we we really need to be we need to be making theater about this we need to be making plays about doing uh zoom over coronavirus and and i get that impulse because it is extraordinary but i also get why people don't necessarily want to engage with it as, mm-hmm. as an audience too. Yeah. It's, it's um, on, uh, on HBO max, there's uh, this show how to with John Wilson. I don't know if any of you guys mm-hmm. have seen it. It's um, see sort of uh, it's produced by, by Nathan Fielder from, from Nathan for you. And sorry, I am in a rocking chair. So that's what the motion is. <laughs> nice. Um, I'm getting a little seasick, but it's cool. <laughs> um, and in I don't want to spoil too much. Every episode he kind of shows you like, or, you know, it's sort of a documentary style series that like branches off from a kind of simple how to. So like how to plastic wrap all your furniture and then it gets kind of, you know, funny and philosophical. And um, in the the last episode does that thing that like, uh, I think Borat 2 also did where like you kind of have the dawning realization that like it is whatever march 2020 february march 2020 and people are starting to act different things are starting to you know they're starting to be boxes of kleenex taped to the sides of taxi cabs hand sanitizer everywhere people are wearing like halloween masks because they don't know what kind of masks you should be wearing Mm. and um I, i thought that was something that was just a really interesting dive back into what that very uncertain time was, which I do find, I think, very inherently fascinating, maybe as opposed to like, just the kind of day to day drudgery of being inside or, you know, if you are an essential worker having to go out and work every day in this, um, that people might not want to see in their media quite so much. But I think that like, there's and, you know, I think it's the same reason people were talking about Jaws a lot this year or um, just the idea of like seeing a story that isn't about COVID, but is about just kind of the broader theme of when 
you know, authority figures don't necessarily want to deal with a problem because it's going to upset the bottom line. It's going to upset, in the case of Jaws, tourism in Amity. Uh, you might as well just, you know, just forget that the shark exists and get those tourist dollars while you can. I love uh, the I love the meme that went around of the mayor where it said, vote in your local elections because this guy is still the mayor in Jaws 2. And how <laughs> the hell did that, how did those people not vote him out? Like, how is that even, like, why, mean, didn't, why didn't Brody run against him? I mean, come on. He's, the guy he's got was that suit with all the little anchors on it. What can you say? I just, I think that's a funny, no, the, I, I, there is something, there's a lot to be said for living through times like this as a creator because it definitely changes how you feel and how you would write certain situations. I, you know, it, I, someone asked me for a recommendation just earlier today for a Godzilla movie because they hadn't seen any of them. And I said, well, either the first one from 54 or the first Gareth Edwards one for 2014, but there's also Shin Godzilla, which is a Godzilla movie made by a Japan that no longer had faith in its political leaders because of Fukushima. So instead of making a movie where the scientists and the military and the government are super competent and working really hard to beat Godzilla, it's a movie about how some intern gets promoted to head of Godzilla affairs because no one else wants to take responsibility for the incredible unfolding disaster crisis. Half of the movie takes place in con in ever larger conference rooms where they're trying to put together their Godzilla task force. And, you know, when the Trump era started, I remember thinking, this is going to change how I write about anyone living under a totalitarian regime, anyone living, you know, if I wrote about occupied France in World War II, I wouldn't, I, I don't know that I previously would have written something I don't think I, I don't know that I would have psychologically grasped that everyone's mad all the time and everyone's exhausted. You know, that like like if I wrote something about the French resistance now, they would constantly be snapping at each other and tired and frustrated in a way that I don't know that I could have grasped without living in a world where the government is cons is just an an unending nightmare show. Yeah. And you They're know, I was constantly outraged. Yeah, I, I was born in nine in the 90s. And I think, you know, growing up, there really is it, it is exactly what people talk about you are kind of taught in this way where it's like, it is the end of history, we're done, we've, we've made it across the finish line, you know. And now one of the things I do for fun, um, is on YouTube, there'll be um, like commercial compilations from like 70s, 80s, 90s that have um, news bumpers, kind of uh, like oh, yeah. little, little bits of um, news anchors just saying the headlines in them. And it's never true. There's always something, you know, whether whether that's going to be revealed later, there's always something you know, kind of fucky going on. And um, it makes you feel a little less alone in a time like now when it feels like everything's coming to a head and everything is so so visible everything that's you know rotten and, and toxic is just so visible um and it, as a creator it makes you feel not very hopeful that you can make stuff that's going to make anyone feel better <laughs> but um but it's and and this isn't by any means a way to say like things can't be better uh because they certainly can and i want them to but it's always you know, 
it's it's never been perfect and there's always been stuff that makes people feel better sure yeah it, it, it's there 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 are two approaches to this with with media you know mm -hmm. books and and tv shows and you know there are the there are the folks in Avalonia you're kind of talking about this where you you lean right into it and that doesn't necessarily mean that you're you're doing a story about you know a pandemic with people wearing masks and all that stuff but but all of this all of this unrest and unease that that we're that we're dealing with right now you deal with it in an interesting way and uh you put a twist on it you know a heightened way you're doing sci-fi and you find some weird heightened way to to deal with it right there's that but like most of what we see particularly if you flip on a television is escapist right and it's already escapist because it's like there's a there are different rules uh you know particularly in sitcoms um, think about how we live our lives every day and how we communicate with each other, how much time we spend on our fucking cell phones or looking at a screen or, or tied to the internet. Like nobody does that in a sitcom, yeah. right? Nobody no has to has, work in a sitcom. No one has a Twitter account in a, yeah. in, on television. I always think that's no. Yeah. And, and there are these highly successful people with really important jobs, but they never seem to have any work or never seem to have any responsibility. They're always they're always sitting in a, a an apartment that is like 10 times as expensive as they can afford. And they're sitting around yucking it up, talking about it. And they have like the mission of the week where it's like we need to set everything aside and we need to get Joe a date for uh, for, for this wedding uh, uh, on the weekend. And and push everything aside. And it's like, you know, that's not how life works. You know, it's like, well, I would like to help Joe, but, um, you know, I have this podcast, I have to do at noon. And then I have to, if I don't post on social media about the Kickstarter, I'm going to be screwed. And then I have to pick my daughter up at five and my daughter has to uh, get to a piano lesson at this time. And then, you know, it's like, that's how our lives are. That doesn't exist <laughs> in entertainment. Yeah. Like it becomes kind of uh, escapist. And, and when you're watching this, a standard action movie, I mean, my day job is I get paid to write action movies. Right. And, 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 you know, there, it's rare that there are politics uh, 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 in action movies right now, you know, uh, 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 big social things that are affecting anyone. You know what I'm saying? It's just a, it's a guy who wants to get his daughter back or a guy who, uh, you know, wants to save these people on a bus or uh, everything gets boiled down. It gets really simple. It gets black. It gets white. Um, you know, even even human interaction. I mean, you know, it is it is so complex right now. And, 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 and for, for for very good reason. Uh, uh, dating and and flirting and, and, and all of these things, right? And 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 none of that stuff exists in media now, right? It's just very simple. It's like you know, a guy likes a girl and and uh, or a girl likes a guy, and there's there's you know, there's none of this other baggage, you know, that 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 we all carry with us through life. Yeah, there's maybe um, one very simple, clear, defined obstacle in the way. Yeah. Not, not like yeah. you know any neuroses really, but. Um, I think maybe maybe what this is getting at is we should really detox our lives and make more room for hijinks. <laughs> I think that here's a, I think that's here's an essay by um, God. I'm spacing on his name now. The uh, the author of Crash and Empire on the and Empire of the Sun. Not my cat. That's not his name. Um, but in the uh, in the in the in the prologue to one of his books. Uh, it's going to kill me that I can't remember his name. Um, he talks about how science fiction is looked down on as a literary genre. And he makes a, I think, intentionally over-the-top argument that, in fact, science fiction is the only valid form of literature. And the his reason for this, which I think is fascinating, 
is that in the real world, society is not static ever. It is constantly in change. In 99% of literature, arts, whatever, society is completely static. Science fiction is usually about what if society has changed in this one way or in these hundred ways? And I think that's kind of a fascinating way of looking at it is that science fiction fantasy genre is usually dealing in a more serious way. Like if you took 20th century literature as the ultimate portrait of humanity, you would believe that the most important thing in human life was marital infidelity. Because that's literally the only topic. It's the only topic of, you know, most... <laughs> Most modern novels, like the topic is marital infidelity, as if that's the, you know, the great crime of mankind. Um, you know, people, middle-aged men writing their sad middle-aged life stories about how, how their midlife crisis didn't work out the way they wanted it to. Uh, and God knows there's enough of that. And so writing about this year that we've been through, or even the last five years that we've been through, is writing about society in change is writing about things changing and i think that you know as rod serling observed you if you make it robots and martians you can write about whatever the hell you want and nobody tries to and you don't get censored yeah. he wrote he wrote a teleplay about a uh, lynching and he did it twice and two times it got completely gutted by the networks. And the third time he made his science fiction story. And that's the, that's the origin of the Twilight Zone is Rod Serling failing twice to get two stories about lynching done. Like the second one, all of the notes he got from the network was, you should put in a lot of dialogue about how this small town is totally unlike every other small town in America. Like literally he got a note that was like, you should have a line in the first scene where the sheriff says, yeah, this, is, this isn't like a lot of towns. And Serling is like, no, it's exactly like a lot of towns. That's kind of the point. The point I'm making is that most towns are like this, actually. And, uh, and that's, you know, that's, it's a, that's a different discussion. But I always think that's the, I always say that's the, the, the joy of genre is that, you know, you, someone struggling with their demons outside of genre is someone, you know, sitting at a bar, staring off into space, writing in a journal. In genre, you can have them actually struggle with demons. And the great thing is on a cellular level, the audience watches that and goes, that's what that feels like. They actually <laughs> often have a more visceral reaction to, yes, I have felt that feeling in my life. I mean, this seems an opportune time to, to... <laughs> sorry, my echo. Here, yeah, Tiny bit. Little echo, so. yeah, yeah. Okay. I'm, I'm here to pick them. We got Are you now? No, I'm not. Um, this actually does seem like an opportune time to mention that I did watch a film this year that was made, you know, I think 10 years ago, but is set in summer 2020, a, a very, very genre film, uh, Real Steel, where mm -hmm. the uh, real, really the only um, divergence in the world is that um, professional boxing is now done by giant robot mechs. Nice. And I'm in favor of that change, by the way. Exactly. Yeah, I would take One that. The, I watched, there was a HBO redid Fahrenheit 451. Mm. And honestly, all their version did was show that Bradbury's future is now pretty much impossible to make come to pass. Mm. 
because what no one, there was a lot of stuff in the 50s and 60s about how technology was ruining everybody's lives and would turn us into a nation of illiterates. And it's like, we all read and write now more than human beings have at any time in human history. We are reading constantly. We are writing to one another constantly. We have a generation of young people that doesn't believe in using phones to speak, but is okay with using them to type to one another. Well, the, the, no the caveat one there, dystopia yeah. saw that coming. Everyone well, thought, caveat, oh, books are yeah. going to be gone. There will be no books. Instead of, oh, everything the firemen burn in, 90, in Fahrenheit 451 is literally in my hand right here. I can find all of it. <laughs> and it's the, pretty the, the, hard yeah. to take that. And the way they had to like do backflips in their modern retelling of Fahrenheit 451 to get around to the existence of the internet, it was wildly unconvincing. The, you know. the, the caveat is that we we write to each other constantly without punctuation or capitalization or uh, you know correct grammar or <laughs> or almost anything. So in a way, we have become functionally illiterate. Building, but, uh, building a new grammar, building a new yeah. one. Yeah. No use for capital letters anymore. They can go. It's still it's still more comprehensible than NADSAT from uh, Clockwork Orange. So I think we're in. You know, I can still understand. I can understand emoji better than I can understand something that's one quarter Russian. Uh, but, uh, but yeah, it's an interesting, I mean, I ended up, I've talked about this before, but I ended up writing something about the pandemic this year, which felt a little risky and it was a comedy. Uh, but it was like Shin Godzilla. I wasn't making fun of people dying of a disease. It's a parody of how people responded to the disaster by believing they should drink bleach and that would make them like that's the that's the thing you make fun of. You don't you don't punch down. You know you punch up if at all. No, I mean if the scrutiny is being directed toward the top at you know at people who are really fumbling this or thinking they can put it off or thinking that they can you know go several months without giving you know normal people who have lost their jobs any relief. Like that is where the attention should be directed. Not that yeah. you know all stories should be about. Um, the powerful, uh, because that is already how it's been for hundreds and hundreds of years. But are yeah. are why not have stories that, in some genre um, fantasy out out their way, explore those themes? Because you know we see it with Rod Serling. We 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 see it in our that part of what helps us in some small way avoid being a being. <laughs> more dystopic than we already are is because dystopias have been written and they've been screened and we know what they look like. So we know what we want to avoid. No, that's well, definitely uh, true. I, I, I wonder though, if, if sometimes, uh, obviously like, uh, like I'm a big genre guy when, when, you know, there's a metaphor there, you know, I, I tend to, to grasp it, but, I see so many people nowadays that, that are huge fans of like like genre material that has been um, trying to, to deliver certain messages for so long. And then they read news about it. And they're like, oh, why did they go and make this political? And I'm like, what do you mean make it political? Like, like why do they put like politics in my Star Trek? And I'm like, well, were, were you not paying attention like the whole time? Yeah. And um, I wonder if we just don't need a few more of what uh, Sterling was trying to sell the first two times to say like, hey, like, um, yeah, just like no, God tell the world God, that is and you, God, you no. it delivered 
God knows like, the world is full of people who miss the point. The and certainly the people who said, well, what do we need diversity on Star Trek for are people who missed the message the first time around. Uh, so captivated were they by William Shatner's toupee, I guess, that they missed the rest of the cast uh, <laughs> being heavily diverse. But, uh, but yeah, you, sometimes it is, you know, it is important to have art that hits the nail on the head. Yeah, but you, do, you you get the people saying, you know, how dare they make superheroes political when, you know, you have Captain yeah. America punching Adolf Hitler in the mouth on the cover of issue one before we're in the war. And yeah. Superman, the first year, go back and read the first year of Superman. He spends most of his time dealing with slumlords and uh, domestic violence. He's very down on bad husbands. And also, you just—you also, I guess, more to more to that point, Norm. I, I, you also just don't want a media landscape that is just sci-fi and superheroes oh, because that is, frankly, boring. And 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 sometimes we do, um, I think, arc toward that, and and it it does get a little tiresome, especially because we have what you know, thousands and thousands and thousands of programming options. Sure. Um, and a bil millions of streaming services. They're not millions of streaming services. Just feels that way. Yeah. Uh, but but yeah, I, th I think some more like head-on storytelling, or you know, I, I think it's up to you know the writer what or you know the the writer creator what they feel they can most how how they feel they can most effectively convey that story that they're trying to tell. Right. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Well, and you know, it it's ultimately you bring your experience and what you believe in to everything you write. One hopes, you know, you know whether it's uh, you know fighting demons or whether it's a sitcom with six people who you know who share an apartment uh, big enough for twenty people. Um, but even in that sitcom, you, you know, you the the problem is that so much of that stuff doesn't have any subtext and doesn't have any weight. And I think it's interesting that documentaries, especially true crime, seem to be on the rise. And I think that that might be a desire for substance, you know? And it's like the superhero thing is just like every other genre. It gets done to death. It gets imitated a thousand times. Um, and the imitations get, you know, when someone is very excited about their metafictional you know, groundbreaking, super realistic superhero thing. I'm like, we've been doing that for 40 years. Like, that's not a, that's not a new, every time someone writes that comics, they're not just for kids anymore article. You're like, I first read that in 1975, man. Like, you know what, you got to stop writing that article. Like where we should be past that now. And someone said this the other day, or a variation of this. And I agree with, we were so desperate for genre stuff when I was a kid. I always use The Man from Atlantis as an example. It was a TV show about a guy with web hands. It was vaguely, it was science fiction. It was terrible. But everyone I knew who was a sci-fi geek in 1975 or whenever this was, watched it because it was that was it. That was the only sci-fi show on television. Now there's like eight Star Wars and 25 Marvels and eight DCs. And the fact that the off-brand there's a little something for everyone and not everything has to be for you is the other great thing. Uh, even if you're a fan of the thing, you know, I like, I enjoy superhero stories, but there's the CW 
Arrowverse, Supergirlverse, got very CW sitcom-y pretty people for me. And I'm like, I'm not, <clears throat> it's okay that this isn't for me. It doesn't actually, we're not so starved for content that every superhero thing has to be for me, every science fiction thing. There's a, there's a Rocketeer show on, I think Disney or Nickelodeon, that's about an eight-year-old girl who has the rocket backpack. It's absolutely for small children. And when it was announced, a bunch of middle-aged jackholes were like, that's not the Rocketeer I want. It's like, it ain't for you, man. Don't want, you don't, no one who's a fan of Dave Stevens and is in their 60s should watch that. That's the, That would be creepy, in fact, if you were watching that. It would be a little, little weird. Maybe you should not. And it's like, let the let little girls have a rocketeer, man. That's cool. <laughs> you know? Well, and it's, it's nice that the... Uh, I'm hearing an echo a little bit there. Um, it's cool, though. Is, is, who's, yeah, who's, who's that going there? I don't think it's me. I don't know. I have my volume pretty far down. Yeah. I got I'm the only guy with headphones right now. What was that? I don't know where he went. Um, I was going to say it's it's nice in that um, the uh, you know viewership has kind of fractured and splintered so much, right? I mean, um, because it has allowed you know so uh, you know more genres, more voices to be heard, more points of views. You know, you no longer have to get thirty million viewers. You know, uh, you know, on a Thursday night in order to stay on a network somewhere, right? Um, the the bar is a lot lower, and so there is now something for everybody. And 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 if there is a story you want to tell and a way you want to tell it, you can usually find a place to take it. Um, you know, it was, <laughs> I mean, even for me, I mean, it was an, an extreme example, but um, you know, I get I get paid to write big action movies in Hollywood. So, but I grew up during the Sundance movement. I saw Pulp Fiction and I said, I want to do that. Um, the twist was by the time I got out to LA, they stopped doing that. Like there was nowhere to take that. Right. Um, and so there were all these stories that I, 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 I hate being the guy who, you know, who complains about getting paid to write action movies or whatever. Um, that being my day job, I sound like an asshole, but, um, but there were still all of these different stories that I wanted to tell that I couldn't tell that I couldn't, you know, uh, I, I couldn't take to universal and, and, and set up as a Justin Lin movie or whatever. Um, and you know, I found comics, comics became my outlet. Well, okay, well, if I can't tell those stories here, well, comics is is freeing in that you can do anything in comics you can tell any sort of story any way you want to tell it uh as long as it is good you know um there will be an audience for it they will find it um and that was awesome that was freeing and i think it's um it's becoming more and more like that on on tv and in movies and and all of these things they're they're you know i mean we talk about a hundred you know, streaming services. And it's, it's not that much of an exaggeration, <laughs> you know, um, if you, if you make a movie, uh, you know, there's so many festivals now, if you make a movie, you will find a big festival to run it. Um, as long as it is, you know, competent in a way. Um, and, and if it runs in a big festival, you will find some place to take it, you know, uh, 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 Amazon will, will take you on Netflix. will take you on, um, uh, the, the, the bar uh, is much easier to clear now. And I think that that's, uh, that's exciting for any number of reasons. I mean, it's, it's just exciting for us in terms of, you know, people who want to, um, you know, get things on a screen somewhere or get things, you know, printed up and in a comic shop or in a bookstore somewhere. That's awesome. But it's exciting for, you know, people who just for decades never saw themselves, you know, on, sc on a screen or in a book, um, never saw their point of view expressed. And, um, and now that is, 
you know, I mean, it's, it's not where it should be yet, but every day it's more and more possible. And that's very exciting. I think that's true. I wanted to, I wanted to ask since that was sort of our opening topic. Oh, my helicopter's here. Um, nice. <laughs> Hollywood. Yeah. Oh yeah. Constant, constant helicopter traffic. I wanted to ask uh, both uh, Norm and Emma. My cat is very chatty today. Um, <laughs> what drew you to look at look at how cute though? Seriously, nice. Um, That's a winner. What drew you to doing uh, YA stuff and doing stuff for a younger audience? Like, uh, what's the what was the attraction to that? Was it something that you had been interested in doing your whole life, or did it happenstance? Uh, I, for me, um, that I, it's just, I think, um, what I'm drawn to, what, like the things I enjoy the most, uh, if you offer me the choice between like a, a Justin Lin action movie and a Pixar movie, I'd, oh, let's see what Pixar is doing. Uh, you know, um, and, uh, which is not to say that I don't watch like adult content and stuff, but when I, when I come up with ideas and things, they tend to, to skew towards like, oh, that would be for a middle grade audience. That would be for a YA audience. And. Uh, that was um, this, yeah, just the stories that I've been coming up with for to entertain myself my whole life, bend in that direction. So, and Emma, yeah. how about? Um, I'd say I mean I've always kind of had this belief, and it's grounded in you know zero science, but that you like get you kind of in a big way, get to start forming your personal taste in a huge way around age like 11, 12, 13. Like it's when you kind of, um, you're kind of getting out of like just watching the stuff that's for kids that every kid you know is watching or reading. Um, and you might like watch a movie with your parents or by yourself for the first time that might be like four not like adult content, but like for a, for general audiences and go like, oh, this is something I like. I mean, for me, it's like, oh, I like, you know, like a 1940s screwball comedy. And I didn't know that I, that that was something for me or I like Rocky. Uh, and it's, so I, I think it's just like a really cool age where you just kind of start to define your own personal sense of humor and sense of taste and sense of what's exciting to uh, consume um, a little bit more. I know that's true for me. And I, and I think it's just, it, it's true kind of with people I've conversed with. And the other part of it is like, I've just always liked working with kids. I've done like groups where we do creative writing workshops with kids. I've, I mean, I've, I've worked with much younger kids too, like as nursery school teachers. And I just think that <laughs> they're funny and fun and cool. And I like making stuff that they enjoy and that they can enjoy with their families or, or caregivers or teachers. Um, and I the, I guess the third part of it is I just feel perpetually 12. So I think it's very easy for me to put myself back there um, and write from a place of what did I care about? What hurt, mm -hmm. what was amusing? what was exciting. Um, so it just feels very natural to me. Um, but uh, yeah, I think it's just a sort of salad of reasons. It, it's really interesting because I think that, you know, I write what I write for the same reason that you guys do. I am stuck back there also, 
Um, and of course, I mean, I sit in a room full of toys, so I'm not, you know, against the kids stuff or anything. But when I was when I was 12, you know, the stuff I was enamored with was, you know, Die Hard, you know, Cobra, Lethal Weapon. You know what I'm saying? Like, those were the things that I was just obsessed with and just like just wore the fucking tapes out, you know. Um, and so I have spent the rest of my life trying to write Lethal Weapon, you know, um, and, and, and that's interesting. It's the same psychological uh, um you know, machine. Uh, it's just, you know, it's almost the same equation. It's like the variables are a little bit different. And that, that's fascinating to me. Yeah. And I think there's like, for me, and yeah, I don't want to project this on you. For me, I'm like, oh, is there a danger to that sometimes of just like trying to reproduce like a childhood that existed 10, 15, 20 years ago for kids now? So they don't really get to have, you know, they're just having a kind of regurgitated culture but a that's just kind of always happening with that like 20 year nostalgia cycle you're always going to have like kids in the 70s who are seeing things that are set in the 50s or you know kids in the now who are seeing things set in the 90s aughts um so i think that's also just kind of a natural thing that happens and you know i try to pay attention to my like friends, little siblings, and my little cousins and stuff. See what they're act, what they're actually responding to, and you know, when I do go on school visits, library visits, stuff, try to like actually hear kids when they have questions or when they want to tell me something that they're really excited about. Um, and it helps. It like just helps kind of like aggregate, get a sense of what what they'll enjoy, what the readers will enjoy. That makes sense. I've I've never been when I was a kid. I hated stuff that was for kids. Like <laughs> it really, it, especially when it was like the four kids, like the having the little kid on Battlestar Galactica. I was like, Kill. do we lose Avalone? Oh, okay. <laughs> I thought it was just, um, yeah, and, no, uh, yeah, it's an amazing frozen picture of him. Though. He's very handsome. Are, are you back, Avalone? You froze there for a second. I think I'm yeah. back. Yeah, you, you were back. Battle Star yeah. Galactica. Yeah. I've, all, I've also, hold on, I'm going to close this door. I've got an orbiting helicopter. <laughs> clearly, clearly somebody is committing some crimes in the neighborhood. But no, I, I hated stuff that was pitched specifically for kids. I liked things that had an adult layer to them, like Bugs mm. Bunny. Uh, which is definitely for kids, but people forget Bugs Bunny cartoons were the thing for kids that came before a Warner Brothers gangster movie in the 30s. Right. Like Tom and Jerry cartoons come before Gene Kelly musicals. So they are pitched in a lighter vein than that. <clears throat> Bugs Bunny is appropriate to go before Betty Davis movie, a uh, 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 Humphrey Bogart movie, a Jimmy Cagney movie. So, like that studio, the the there's a there's a whiff of the adult that hangs around them. Uh, it's not really pitched for kids, and I think you know so much successful kid stuff is that way. And I grew up in the '70s, where <clears throat> in the '70s and '80s, kid stuff was remarkably sinister. Uh, you go back and watch that. We, my wife and I, went on a thing where we watched The Wiz and Return to Oz. Oh yeah, baby! Some of the specials from that period, and like this is just some dark, twisted, sad stuff. 
that we expected kids to be cool with in the 70s and the 80s. Um, and that def and clearly that, you know, as, he, as we've talked about, we're all sort of recreating the things we loved in, as kids. And, you know, all art, everyone's first thing is an imitation of a thing that they love. We all, we all do that. It's fine. I made a Star Wars movie when I was 14 on Super 8, you know, with little plastic models on strings and shit like that. And uh, there's, and then my first professional job was writing a short story for a Star Wars publication. So it's not, <laughs> it does come into play. I mean, I got a, I got a gig once writing, long before I was writing comic books, I wrote a, I was asked to provide a script for a Spider-Man animated show. And the episode never got filmed, but the X-Men were the guest stars. And I was like, thank God I read X-Men comics when I was a teenager. The sheer amount of research I would have to do on these six characters to get their voices and their powers and all that preparatory to this gig. If I didn't have a decade of Chris Claremont plugged into my brain, I wouldn't know any of this and how lucky that is. So we're, you know, we're all sort of applying the stuff that we learned and the stuff that we loved uh, well, and, I, and making the stuff that we loved. Yeah. I mean, your, your Star Wars movie is an interesting thing. I mean, there, there's, it's no coincidence that I write in a room full of the toys I played with when I was a kid. Um, it's, uh, you know, there's, oh yeah, there's my Lego pirate ship, uh, Norm. Um, I forgot that was there. Um, but the, the, you know, I started storytelling when I was really young and the greatest stories I've ever told, I still have told with my toys. Right. Um, and so I, I still have them. Uh, if, if I lost them over the years, I went out and got them. The other thing I, I did was there was stuff that I, I desperately wanted when I was a kid, but we couldn't afford it or you couldn't find it because, you know, Toys R Us sold out of it or whatever. And I went out and got that shit and it's all around me and it inspires me. You know, it, uh, the, um, that, that energy that I used to connect with when I was telling stories as a kid, there we go. We're getting norms, uh, Getting arms. Ooh, wow. Whoa. That's, that's, that's on there. That was big. <laughs> um, yeah, that was big. But, but you know, I, I, I'm sort of connecting to that same force that I was connecting to when I was, you know, whatever, eight years old and playing with my toys and, you know, making fucking kumites in my, in my basement with all my action figures and stuff like that. Um, I'm still connecting with that. And then the amazing thing is I have a four-year-old daughter now um, and seeing her do the exact same things with her toys now and the, these elaborate stories that, that just sort of come spewing out of her four-year-old mind. It's incredible. You know um, it's just, it's like watching her, you know, like I, I, I watched her born. Right. And like watching these stories come out of her, it's like a, it's a similar feeling. It's like a smaller version of that feeling, but it's like, it's, you're just watching kind of life happen, you know um, it's awesome. And so, so I think that, you know, I mean, I think that that's why I do this because it's like, um, it's the most, uh, it's the most incredible high, right? You know, I mean, creation is, is, is uh, you know, you give birth to this story and it's, um, and, you know, I don't smoke, but you need a cigarette afterwards, you know? <laughs> well, and I, I definitely remember, like, I remember playing with toy soldiers when I was a kid and doing this, like, very epic uh, post-apocalyptic narrative. And it was a little bit Planet of the Apes and it was a little bit Omega Man, but there was one issue of Erie magazine that had a post-apocalyptic comic book storyline. Can't even remember the title of it. And that thing was, it was like, you know, maybe 40 pages of comic books. It's a huge influence on me. I still think about it. 
I saw it at a con a few years ago. I was like, oh my God, I ripped this to shreds when I was a kid and now I can reread it. Uh, and it kind of held up and it kind of didn't, but you know, I, you always want to think about that, like the dumb thing that you worked on one afternoon and sent off to an artist and they drew it and it got in a book for one person out there in the world. That's going to be the thing that like, they go, this is it, man. This is the stuff. This is the good stuff. This is the thing that makes me want to go out and make art. And, uh, you know, not that we have to proceed with this heavy sense of responsibility, but it's like, it's hard not to want to bring your best to this stuff. And especially yeah. I would think if you're doing stuff that's pitched specifically at kids and at teens, you know, it's a, you know, you want to, you want to, you want to, you want to send them out there fighting the good fight. You know? Yeah. Um, yeah. yeah. My, my books, they're all, um, I, I wouldn't say that I'm ever like preachy, I hope, but uh, every one of my books is, is something I wish somebody would have told me at a certain age. That's a great, that is a great way to look at it. That is definitely a great way, you know, incorporate the life lesson I always say that about Monopoly. I wish when I had played Monopoly as a little kid, someone had said to me, actually working for a living is for suckers and owning stuff that people have to pay you for. This is actually a really important lesson about passive income and how <laughs> you should have it or you're screwed. Uh, I kind of wish my parents had said that to me when we sat down to play Monopoly when I was a kid. Stratego yeah. has not come in handy terribly much, but... Uh, <laughs> Nor has uh, risk. I have never been about to launch a land invasion in Kamchatka and gone, you know, this is probably going to end badly. I know that from experience. Um, but Monopoly, it's like, man, residual checks, royalties, real estate. These are these are all things we Lego should. Lego instructions. Yeah, Lego instructions. Like I said. Diversify your bonds. The, the, jo the job, the you know. And, you know, the funny thing about that is it is – it is ultimately creative work. And it's what I love most about it is it's creative work you did entirely for your own entertainment and amusement. You put it out just as a lark and people wanted to buy it from you. That's sort of the dream, <laughs> you know, like you you had a hobby that you loved and you put pictures of it online and people are like, I want to pay you for your version of this hobby that I also love. Um, speaking of hobbies that we all love, but the last round, you know, roundup thing for 2020 is, do you guys feel like the YA market has changed at all in the last year? Is it roaring back hard? Like with schools closed, has that affected overall sales? You know, like what's the, what is the state of the YA union right at this exact moment? Thank you so much. <laughs> oh. Glass of water. Sorry, no, I just had, uh, I had um, my boyfriend bring me down a charge cord because I am running low. Sure, sure. Norm, any thoughts, any feelings? Uh, I mean, for me, uh, like I'm, uh, I'm very independent and without any conventions, like it was just, yeah, uh, it, was, it was nothing. Um, so I'd, I'd be interested to hear Emma's perspective uh, with the OK Witch and, and uh, if there was any change in the market that she saw from 
Yeah, I mean, uh, for me, I think when I was when I was growing up, I loved comics, but most of what I read were like Archie comics, um, you know, uh, and I adored that. I got as many as I could, but the idea of graphic novels specifically for um, middle grade readers, um, you know, tween readers, uh, has really become more of a thing in the past five or so years. Um, I think, you know, a lot of people attribute that boom to Raina Telgemeier for very good reason. She put out, you know, a number of these very successful kind of grounded graphic novels about kids, you know, about herself and about other kids kind of going through very um, relatable school experiences. And in her wake there, it's just been become clear to kids and their families and librarians and bookstore owners and the people who, you know, acquire books that kids really love this. You know, they, they really love graphic novels made, made especially for them. And so I, you know, I, I love making comics and I, and I love making content for young people. And I entered the, that market at a, extremely good time um, because people value that right now. People people are going, oh, this is something kids really do want and they want a lot of it. They, you know, if they if they love one, they're gonna want recommendations for a whole ton. Um, so I think that has been the, I guess that's not really a change I've noticed since I've come into the field, but I think part of that is, you know, kids also want a, a breadth of graphic novels in the same way they want a breadth of, you know, prose books, which means that, that this um, genre, this form is opening up to a lot more um, diversified voices, which is really, really important um, for the enrichment of the form itself. Um, it means so many more stories can be told and told really authentically and effectively. Um, and they don't have to be stories that are, you know, specifically about the struggle of coming from one identity or any kind of specified pain. They can be really light, amusing stories or beautiful, um, heartfelt stories where that identity is a crucial aspect, um, but the story is much more beyond that as well. So right. I think that's um, that's just on its way. It, that's just growing exponentially. I, I hope um, I'm seeing, again, uh, sort of more of the beginnings of that and more publishers really valuing that. I would I would love to see more of it and I would love to see more diversity in, in um, publishers and, and people who acquire those books, people who agent for um, authors and creators, illustrators as well, um, because it just makes better books. Yeah. No, you know, obviously the, you know, representation is everything. And that thing you were saying about it, not being about, you know, not having to be a painful part of the identity. Last movie I produced for various, I'm, as straight as German railroad track, but for various reasons, I ended up making a bunch of LGBTQ movies in the aughts through the teens. Uh, that was just who I was working with and who I ended up working for. 
And the first two movies that I worked on with this one director were about the issues of coming out of the closet. The third movie I worked on was about a married gay couple who get involved in hijinks and it's a heist story and it's a comedy about real estate in Los Angeles and not any part of the story has anything to do with them being two gay dudes who are married. It's just a story. It's, it's a romantic, you know, we sold it to people by saying, you know, it's a, it's a, it's a Cary Grant, Catherine Hepburn movie, except Catherine Hepburn is Randolph Scott, like he was in real life. Uh, and that's, that's it. That's the only gay element is these two guys are married to one another. And I, I took that, I produced that movie because of that. I was like, Oh, look, it's a, it's a script for a gay movie. That's not about no one's dying of AIDS and no one's a street hustler and no one's grappling with coming out to their parents. They're just two dudes who live in Silver Lake, you know, and get into wacky hijinks. And how great is that? You know, someone once said that the true representation is when your thing can even suck. When, when you get to make, when everything doesn't have to be. Yeah, it's not this high perfect. stakes. Everyone's yeah. watching when, to see if this is going to be a good movie about this or if it's, or if movies about being this, you know, this identity just don't work because this one didn't work. Yeah, exactly. Like, so, so now you have it across the board. You have, an, you know, creators are free to tell whatever stories they want to tell. And obviously it's an evolving thing, but I, you know, I, uh, the way I've seen it evolve in my lifetime, I think I'm the oldest here. And I remember watching, I remember the first time I saw black people in a commercial. Like that's the world I was, the world I was born in was McDonald's was afraid to have black people in commercials because it would offend white people. And sometime in the late seventies, I saw a McDonald's commercial with about where a black family went to McDonald's and I went, I guess they're not afraid anymore, <laughs> you know, at least, or maybe they're only showing this in New Jersey, New York, Michigan, you know, like I have no, maybe it's only being shown in LA County. I don't know, but the way in which, and again, we're still a million miles from any kind of real equality, but the leaps and bounds it's made in my lifetime are wild. I was watching the Falcon and the Winter Soldier, and there was a scene in the first or second episode between Don Cheadle, and I can't remember the name of the actor who plays the Falcon, and I just remember thinking, I remember when TV shows were only allowed to have one black man on them. Like two black dudes having a conversation on a show that's not The Wire is, you know, it's like, oh, and they're both military officers and it's a science fiction show and it's a superhero show. That that still strikes me as, uh-huh, you don't see that. I, I still haven't seen that a lot. That it's still remarkable uh, is a sign of how much work we have to do. But, you know, the work is being done. And to, to, to pick up on something you said, Emma, I wonder, we talk a lot about this, you know, the state of the industry and all that, but I have to wonder if this generation that's really getting into graphic novels, I want to hold on to them. I want, I want them to keep reading. I want them to stay with it as a form of media. I want them to... I want them to go from your book to my favorite thing is monsters. You know what I mean? Which is more adult. It's still about sure. a child, but it's certainly not for children. Uh, but it's a groundbreaking, you know, there's so much great work out there 
there's that great essay by Alan Moore where he talks about how strange it is for an entire medium to be dominated by one genre. Yeah. Like if the only movies were Westerns and it was just weird to even suggest making a movie that wasn't, well, you, you're gonna make a movie that's not a Western? Why would you do that? Movies are Westerns. Comic books are about guys in capes. Why, like, why would you write a comic book about your childhood? It's crazy. But that's the world we lived in ridiculously for a really, really, really long time, you know? No, I, 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 I think they are. I, I, I mean, I, I have a lot of faith in kids growing up right now and their intelligence and their savvy. And I think, you know, part of, and not to, to get to like sanctimonious about it, but I think part of what might be drawing them to graphic novels and that kind of like visual slash textual media where you're combining what you're seeing in a picture with what you're reading in a script and you are synthesizing all of that in your own brain. Like that is the world we live in. That is the technology we interact with. That is how we have to process the news that we take in. And I think, I mean, I think it, it all helps and it all, um, you know, it, it is all, brain nourishing if you use it. So I, I, I have faith. I think that's a good, that's a good to point to go out on, on that subject is that it, you know, it's the, there's, there's an evolution in process. And I think a greater open mindedness about, you know, taking your art and your uh, entertainment from a variety of sources, um, you know, they're not seeing comic strips in newspapers because they're not reading newspapers, but there are comic strips on Instagram that are every bit as good as what I grew up reading in newspapers. Uh, and it's a very valid form. And you also hope, and I think this is another big part of it. Uh, you also hope that it's another generation of creators. Uh, and you know, that tends to be self fulfilling that people see it and go like, I want to, I want to do this. You know, I was not particularly fascinated with wanting to be a comic book person, a comic book writer when I was a teenager in my twenties, because again, the subject matter was mostly superheroes and I was not overly fascinated by that. And I was like, well, I don't, I don't know that I'm going to want to write something that belongs in a comic book. Uh, Cause I'm not interested. I mean, and I, you know, I love Superman. I enjoy superhero comic books it just wasn't and you know here i've been writing comics professionally for six years i really my first book was a vampirella book and that's as close as i've come to writing a superhero and she's really not a superhero <laughs> like she's she that it's a huge stretch to say vampirella is a superhero and you know would i write one if she's more of a vampire I've, I've not read much vampire. she wears a, a yeah. interesting bathing she's got suit a uniform all the time um, I, I have seen the costume yeah yeah, she wears a monokini, and uh, but she's a horror character, really. Uh, the, the outfit is really the most comic booky thing about her, and it, as is so often the case, it's like so many modern retellings now get her out of the costume as much as humanly possible because sure. it is a fairly ridiculous thing to run around in all the time. You know, and the first thing I wrote was a was a, was a uh, a steampunk vampirella she was in a dress the you know 
she was in petticoats the entire time. It wasn't, no one made me put her in a swimsuit, um, which is nice, I guess. A quote but, unquote uh, monokini. That's a great word. It's just fun monokini, to say. Monokini. That is the, yeah. That is, that is the word for what she's wearing. It's a one piece, but very, but very, very. In the middle. But there's a giant hole in the middle of it simulating what you would see if she was wearing a bikini. So, sure. you know, but it's important to remember she is from another planet. So that's my favorite planet. thing about Vampirella. Not She is a, I'm not a fan of vampire things. Vampirella is from the planet, I kid you not, Draculon. No, nice. Where wow. everyone is a vampire and where human he hemoglobin like literally fills their oceans and their rivers. That wow. is the, and you know, a bunch of better and more famous writers than me have revised her origin to be like, she's the daughter of Satan and it's blah, 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 blah. And I'm like, no, planet Draculon. I will cling to planet Draculon with my fingernails if I most, because it is so ridiculous. It's very good. Um, incredible. Sign me up. Yeah, exactly. Oh, Dracula. But on that note, we should probably wrap up for the day. We 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 do like wrapping up by having people say where we can find you and what you have coming next. Norm, you want to kick us off? Uh, yeah, um, I'm uh, at that Norm Dude on Twitter and Instagram. ThatNormDude.com is my website with all my books. Uh, I guess if you go to Rubricable.com and search Flashback Bricks, you'll find my instructions if you want to do that. Uh, and what I have coming next uh, is too early to talk about, but it's really fun stuff, and I think you're going to love it. So follow um, Norm on all of the places so that he can tell you about it when it does come out. Emma? Um, well, you can find me at E.M. Steinkellner on both Instagram and Twitter. You might be a little disappointed by how little I post. Um, fair warning. Um, and you can always go to my website at emmasteinkellner.com. And... Uh, my next thing is coming out July 6th, 2021, and it is called The Okay Witch and The Hungry Shadow. But if you're not caught up on the story, you can always find The Okay Witch, the original, um, at your local library, bookstore, um, online. It's all over. And please also look for Kinsey. It's on Comixology. It's in comic book stores. It's great. Great fun. And the OK Witch, is that Simon & Schuster who's yes, publishing that? Yes, Aladdin. Nice. Is Aladdin the YA imprint that Simon & Schuster? I don't know the... It is, yeah, it's an, it's an imprint of Simon & Schuster doing like um, children's middle grade books. Very nice. Ryland? I am at Ryland Grant on all forms of social media. That's R-Y-L-E-N-D-G-R-A-N-T. I always spell it because it's not a real name. My parents drunkenly arranged letters and saddled me with it. And so now I have to spell it for you. Um, uh, my books, uh, the Ringo award-winning Aberrant and the Ringo the four-time Ringo nominated uh, Banjax are available uh, via fine booksellers everywhere. Amazon, Comixology, all that stuff. You know where to get those. Um, my, uh, biggest, baddest, and most recent, uh, The Jump, my, uh, paranoid astral projection thriller is available right now, uh, for another week or two, uh, via Kickstarter, uh, bit.ly backslash The Jump 2, um, go check that out, um, it's fun, I think it's, uh, you know, maybe the best thing I've ever written for comics, so, uh, 
check that out. Um, yeah, and I'm uh, after this, I'm going to get Norm to teach me how to make a Cobra Kai dojo out of uh, out of Legos. So. <laughs> oh, that's very exciting. I've got uh, Mr. Miyagi and Daniel and minifigures all made up. So. Oh, wow. wow, yeah, yeah. Sign me up for those, yeah. Oh, Take my are you money working here. on an Elizabeth Shoe, or are we forgetting that movie ever got made? Oh, no, oh, I love I, that movie. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. Elizabeth Shue was in the was in the original. You're talking about um, uh, the next oh, Freddy, Hillary Swank. Yeah, oh, no, was, Elizabeth Shue is in number two, right? Oh, uh, in the second one, when he no, is a man yeah. who will fight no, for her. I remember the music video. <laughs> no, no, Elizabeth Shue is in the first one. Uh, well, Robin Lively is in the uh, third one, I think. Third one. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, the, yeah, the, yeah. In the second one, he goes overseas, and uh, yes, and, and um, yeah. And the thing with the wildlife, it's it's completely off topic, but my favorite thing about the Hillary Swank one is how it got completely erased from human history, like like the name of it, Moses it in the Ten Commandments from Egyptian monuments. It got sanded off when I just particularly remembered it when she did the boxing movie with Clint Eastwood. And she was talking yeah. about learning how to box. And I was like, did the journalists get a piece of paper saying, if you mention the next Karate Kid, you will be murdered? Like, not one person says, well, but didn't you do a lot of martial arts at one point? You were a karate bird? Like, no one was like, no, don't. We every don't do every series kind of has a movie that, like, isn't canon, you know? Like, Beverly Hills Cop 3 is just such a, you know, it's just such an affront to the other two movies. Is that the theme um, one? Yeah, that's yes. the theme park one. That's and in fact, park. Beverly Hills Cop 3 was not originally a Beverly Hills Cop movie. It was some random spec. And, you know, it was a cash grab. They're, they're like, let's take this. Let's put Eddie in it. Let's change, you know, the name John to Axel. And uh, let's just roll right. with it. Um, and uh, and yeah, yeah. The, the next Karate Kid is really rough. I mean, it's, it, it's you know, the, the Karate Kid is my favorite movie of all time. The next Karate Kid may be my least favorite movie. It's like, it doesn't even take place in, in, in you know, the Reseda Encino area. Miyagi takes this trip uh, to the Boston area and and meets this kind of granddaughter of an old friend of his, and it's 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 terrible and it's that sounds uh, exhausting. Yeah, it's 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 tough. Well, I'm glad we've yeah. covered that the yeah. the ins and outs of that uh, of that series because I am I am not well versed on the Karate Kid. I'm afraid to mention. Yeah, the, the love the, the love interest in a in a second one in the second one is a lovely uh, uh, Asian American actress named Tamlin Tamita. I was going to say, is that Tamlin Tamita? She's great. Yeah, yeah, and she comes back for uh, for this last season of Cobra Kai, and, oh, uh, she? and she, just, she she doesn't look a day older than she did you know thirty years ago, and uh, and um, and she is uh, and 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 we can talk about this on another show, but. But she, uh, Kamiko is her name in the second one. She's the one who got away. A lot of people think Elizabeth Shue is the one that got away for, for Daniel. Uh, yeah, she's it's, lovely. It, it's, yeah, yeah. Sure. They're, they're both very lovely, but 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 the love <laughs> of Daniel's life was, was Kamiko. So. They had so much fun in that, like Johnny Rockets or whatever that, you know, 50s, 90s <laughs> I'm so I'm always happy when this becomes a Karate Kid podcast. I'm, yeah, I, 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 I warned you guys it go it goes off the rails. We didn't yeah. we didn't argue about Star Trek captains this time. Yeah, but, I can uh, talk about the last Starfighter next let's time. Let's go. Um, Sign me my, up. Uh, I can be found at uh, davidavalonefreelance.com. That has the links to all of the things. I do another podcast called Pulp Today, where I read old books and talk about them. Uh, usually things originally published on crappy paper and I, uh, I argue for their validity as uh, literature and uh, 
I, they haven't announced it yet, but I, it's been over a year, so I'm tired of pretending it's not happening. The next uh, thing I have coming is Elvira meets Vincent Price uh, for four issues, uh, unless people buy so many of it that they make me do more of them, which would be fine. Um, and Vincent Price is amazing, by the way. Just as an aside, I had to research Vincent Price to do the book. Amazing. In the 1960s, he had a job. <laughs> Such a, he had a job. He convinced Sears to let him buy moderately priced original art and sell it in Sears. Yeah. And we're talking like some of it was like Picasso sketches what? when you could sell a Picasso sketch for like $1,000. So you used to go into a Sears and there would be an art gallery a Vincent Price art gallery in your local Sears where you could wow. buy original art. I wasn't able to use that in the story, but anyway, that's all we have time for today. You've now learned a vital piece of American history. Thank you so much, Norman Emma, for joining us. And uh, we'll see everybody on the next exciting episode. Thanks for listening, guys. Thank you. If you're watching us on YouTube, be sure to smash that like button. If you're listening to us on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or other fine purveyors of ear crack, please leave us a five-star review. And wherever you're watching and or listening, subscribe, subscribe, subscribe. We'll see you back here next week for more madcap hijinks on the Writer's Block. For more information, visit PendantAudio.com. Thanks for listening.